Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. We're now in chapter seven, the critical step in selling. And I really like this, which I've circled, which he says, selling is essentially a transference of feeling. Yeah. What do you reckon? I think selling's a very emotional thing. I think that a lot of the people that do really, really well. Do you reckon? Yeah, I think a lot of people who do really well, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, recognise that there is an emotive element in every sale, um, whether that's in a B2C or a B2B. You know, in B2B, it's a lot of the B2B suppliers, B2C suppliers are brilliant at it, aren't they? They mess with your emotion. They, they, they mess with your mind. But actually, I think the really great B2B salespeople understand the emotion of the procurement, irrespective of what the technology is. They understand how it makes people feel about buying it. I, I think I agree totally. I think the understanding of the prospect is key critical. The president of our company, a guy called Jim Cassens, one of the things that makes him an exceptional sales lead is that for the first few years of his career, he wasn't a salesperson. Right. He, was, he ran the data center. So he did the job of the people he's selling to Right. Or was selling to in the first instance. So he 100% gets it. And I think so. a lot of salespeople, you know, the, the crowd, if it will, are reasonably lazy. In my opinion, they want to take a shortcut. So they, although they're selling to data center managers and CISOs and all this st- sort of stuff, do they really understand the pressures of a CISO? Yeah. Or what a CISO is going through a or what a CISO gets up in the morning and worries about and how he orders his life and the situation. And in my previous company, we sold to CISOs a lot. And although they didn't take the exam because it was expensive for one, one of the things that we got all the sales guys to do was go through SISM training, you know, um, the Chartered Institute of Security Management, so they would do everything up to, but take the exam. So they fully understood, or as best as they could, understood the logic that their prospect was going through yeah. when they were considering key critical data assets, where they were stored, how they were protected, and the responsibilities of people in and around the organization to it. Because without that, you couldn't say, I know your problems, and here's what I fix. Yeah. And that's and that's. It, that's about creating a depth of empathy, isn't it? Yeah. But that depth of empathy understand it is about understanding the feelings of the customer. We can't own what we sell, though, because I don't have a. <laughs> You're not going to buy a mainframe <laughs> <laughs> or, or mid-range server to load the job scheduling software on. So you've got to get into it in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. You're not going to buy the pans. Yeah, that's his, but that's the best story in the book, isn't it? Best story he's ever said, actually. Yeah, it's a famous Zig Ziglar story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
But that's, a, I mean, that's maybe it's a segue into talking about that. He talks about the importance of belief, doesn't he? And I think that is massive. Well, we're trying to go through the book sequentially, but you may as well tell the pan story, Johnny, now for those that haven't heard it. Yeah, because we're on the pan story. So he tells this story. It, it, it's a, and, and on, the, on the audio recording, you know, you're drawn into this story about he's got a mate, his mate's not selling much, mate's struggling. Um, they're both in the pans, what are they called? The salad master pans or whatever they're called. They're, they're both in the salad master pans business. Zig's smashing it, making loads of money. He goes to his mate's house. His mate's wife's using a different set of pans. His mate's moaning about the fact that he's not selling much. And by the end of the conversation, Zig sold his mate a set of pans, a set of salad master pans, even though his mate obviously works for the company. And then actually only months later, because he's using the pans, he believes in the pans and actually his mate starts smashing it. Probably because he had a load of chucky to pay for on the pans. They're expensive. They're a thousand pounds. Are they? They're a thousand dollars, these pans. They're not, they're 995. <laughs> yeah, 995, yeah. 995. Brilliant. But his, his point, what he's illustrating is he's absolutely right, isn't it? You know, Mike, there's a phrase Mike uses a lot, which is, I'd spend my money on that salesman. I don't use it a lot, Jonathan, because I don't meet money that I spend my own money on. No, but if Mike says I'd spend my money on it, clients should hire him. Um, and the question is... Thank you. Yeah, they should, yeah. The question is, would you, would you spend your money on Product X? If you're a salesman, and it's fascinating when you do meet some salespeople, and Mike and I have often talked about it, some sales guys are what we call belief, sell, belief sellers. They, and they talk to you a lot about when, what you're looking for in your next job. I've really got to have a product I'm passionate about. I've got, I've just got a passion for what I'm selling at the moment. I don't think it works. I never see the customer winning with it. My wife is very much like that, actually. What? In her last job, she had no belief whatsoever. She used to say to me every night, I still can't work out why a customer would part with half a million quid for this. Just can't get it. Whereas the product she sells now, she thinks that every customer should buy it. Well, I had a friend who worked for SCC. And he's a friend. He's not a contact. I've known him since I was, since I was tiny. And if you had tortured him, literally tortured him and said, come on, computer center's better than SCC, he wouldn't have buckled. He truly 100% believed that SCC was a better company for clients to buy from. Lo and behold, he did really, really well there. Because he believed in it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think that passion, will it, it can carry you a long way. And a lot of companies are, in many respects, do you know, a, a lot of companies are founded on that passion, Mike. Apple, that's just... It's a, it's a cult, isn't it? All around the belief around the product. Yeah. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. So here we are, page 93. I don't know what page you'll be on, Jamie, but I'll read it out anyway. It says, who sells whom? I empathize this. A sale is made on every presentation. The prospect either sells to you that he can or he can't or won't buy, or you sell to him that he can and should buy. Now, obviously, this phrase, a sale is made, has been popularized in the film et cetera, et cetera. Boiler room. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's one of the most famous lines, in it? On every call, a sale is made. Yeah, I think it's very true, that. I think it's very true um, in terms of the client sells to you that they can buy, uh, can't buy, or, the, or, or you sell to them that they can. But if there's not a need, surely they're not going to buy, and that's not a sale. It's just a pragmatic response to your pitch. I think that phrase would make a lot of salespeople incredibly uncomfortable, Mike. What do you reckon, Jamie? But it's true. It's true. Typically, they're, they're selling you that they don't have enough money. 
to buy it. Oh, I've only got this in the budget. And then you're sort of like, well, what was it? You know, I hear that a lot. Oh, he's, we need to work to his budget. And I'm like, what, what's, what's the benefits? We seem to be talking about our price. I'm not re- hearing you tell me what the benefit we're giving this customer. You know, so, I mean, I've got this one deal at the moment with a large car company. The list price for the software is $2 million. And we're already at a big discount. And the customer's trying to bend us over and tell us they need another third off this price. And the salesperson is imploring me, he's imploring his manager, he's going, take us to the president, we've got to get this discount, we can have the deal done now really quickly. And there's a few universal truths, right? We won't get the deal done quickly, we'll agree a price and then it will drag on because it's by selling to a really large organisation. And the other truth of the matter is, at no point, when I go, you know, turn it on the sales guy and say, tell me the value this software is creating. The sales guy's like, um, uh, oh, I'm not fully sure. And if you can't pull out the economic impact, then we're not having a level discussion about price, are we? Because we could be saving this guy millions and he's still trying to get some more money out of us. He's selling to you, isn't he? He's selling to you. He's saying, come on, let's get it sorted and I'll sign it today. That's his sale to you. And it's interesting we talk about the ethics of it. I put a post on LinkedIn the other day about a call I had with a client where he rang in, wanted to know how much it was going to cost him to fill a job. I quoted him a price. He said it was too expensive. The, the long and short of it is I didn't overcome the objection. He then went and found a cheaper recruiter who placed literally the worst candidate in the market for that particular market sector. I mean, literally the worst one. We're talking about somebody who I know their profile, their CV is a tissue of lies. I also know they haven't sold anything for five years. And and I actually said, the guy might as well have burned 40 grand's worth of tenors in his back garden with a fag lighter in this hire. It's that bad a hire. But actually, it's my fault as a salesman that I've let that guy, and and Zig, Zig Ziglar would say, you've let that guy down. You have let your customer down. In that call, a sale was made. He sold to you that he didn't see the value in paying more for a better quality recruitment service and a search, and you didn't let him understand the value. And now that guy has made an enormous error for which he will lament for the next six months. Maybe you should have permission, pressure permission closed him, Johnny. You like what pressure was, permission? Come on, Jamie. You have to talk to us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Come on. Permission. But do you know what I mean? That, that's the reality. A sale got made, and I let the guy down. I didn't fight hard enough. And actually, he's a nice fella. And now I've had a bit of time to reflect on it. My bad salesmanship, that guy is literally, he's going to be in a world, I know he's in a world of hurt now. That's a cool startup with cool technology and an absolute moron for a salesman. And he's going to be sat here in six months' time in real bother. Why? Yeah, but you've got a time equation play to consider, right? You've got to think... Is it worth my time investing in this guy to convince him and overcome his objections to get him the person he needs? And in that, you know, you're a business owner. You've got to make that call. And, you know. Well, his his objection was all, and he he wanted very lengthy rebate terms. And normally, to be fair, I tend to run a, Michael will tell you, we run a mile when clients want lengthy rebate terms because it normally tells you they're bad at recruitment. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah. 
that's the point, isn't it? A sale got made. And actually now he's sat there. Oh, my salesperson started. Brilliant. As Michael calls it, the wet firework. Everybody's gathered round on bonfire night. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to go off, is it? So go on, tell us about the pressure clothes then. We've, I really feel like we need to know about this. Yeah, you're going to have to explain it to us more, Jamie. Well, the pressure clothes was the um, sales guy that selling pans again. He'd done his big presentation. I always like the way that they did multiple presentations to people in a host house. Did you pick up on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. He referenced that a couple of times. and got a few people around. And I think these guys must have been phenomenal cooks as well, right? Because they were like, <laughs> here's the food, eat the food. It's so good. It makes you better at cooking. And he actually addresses that point later on in the book as well. But the guy was like, apparently, the guy like them was like straight on to the guy. Like, right, right. We're going to sign this up now because you're going to. And the guy was the, the prospect blows up. And he said, oh. And then he immediately recoils and says, I'm so sorry. I've got it wrong. I've got it wrong. I'll go. I'll go. I'm sorry. My boss is here. I've, I've made a show of myself. I'm going to go. So he, he does the theater of packing everything away. And then we used to call this Columbo closing. So he does that. But before I go, there's one more thing. We're friends, right? It even gets the guy to acknowledge that they're friends. And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, we made an error before. So as a friend, if you were about to make a mistake and screw yourself up, would you want me to tell you? And the guy was like, yeah, of course I would in a financial basis. And he said, because it's weird, because that's what I was just about to do when you exploded. <laughs> and that's all I wanted to do, stop you making a mistake. Like it. And so do you want to hear about the mistake I think you're about to make, or should I just go? And of course, you know, we call these questions that, you know, you'd be an idiot to say no to. Yeah. Do you want to hear about the mistake you're about to make? No, I want to make it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're real tie-downs, aren't they? They're really sharp tie-downs. Yeah, yeah. So maybe you should have done that with this guy, Johnny. Yeah, but maybe I should. Yeah, maybe you should. And actually, you know, Zig's point, Zig's point would be, if Zig Ziglar was on this call now, he'd say, you let that client down. You let him down. Absolutely. He'd say, you didn't act in his best interests and you let him sell to you. Zig would have said that if you had manipulated him, it was good manipulation. He would have said it would have been right for you to have manipulated him because you'd stop, you would have stopped him having what in reality is a horrific car crash, metaphorically. So here's one for you then. Don't know what, uh, this is chapter 10 for me. Uh, salesperson, are you a salesperson or a professional visitor? I really like that. Love it. So we interview feedback we often get, Jamie, where I actually then slap my hand onto my head. I say, how did it go? And, oh, lovely guy. We had a really good chat. I was in there for an hour and a half. Great chat. Great chat. I was in there for an hour and a half. I think, brilliant. That is you unsuccessful. Yeah. You must have had it, Jamie, and I'm sure this isn't the case with any of your existing team, for sure. How do you meet and go with client X? Oh, yeah, it's brilliant. I was with him for two hours. Lovely guy. (laughs) I do have it. And, um... The the version I hear quite often is, I've got a fabulous relationship with them. So, oh, 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 good, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I like your sarcasm. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. Tell me, tell me, tell me more about this relationship. Oh, yeah. They he's into cars like I'm into cars. Got an Aston Martin and blah blah blah. And I'm like, cool. But they're on vacation, right? Yeah, yeah. They're on vacation, and they didn't give you anyone else to talk to while they're on vacation. No. No. <laughs> oh, have you asked them for the business? D- you sort of. 
well, what do you mean? So, well, they're not quite ready to build. How do you know? Well, I just, I just get a feeling from, and you know, but you've not asked any of the questions that will qualify this for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I remember doing it myself in in the Prudential, really early days. I'd not been selling long at all, and I went to see this couple, and they told me in the opening meeting that they had no money, and I went, okay. And they said, but could you come back again next week and do blah? I said, yeah, I came back. And then they were like, and they were getting me to do all this service and stuff. And there was no sale in sight. And I wasn't there to service them. I should have handed it off yeah, to yeah. somebody else. But they were really nice. And I was like 21, straight out of university, and didn't have the conversation with my sales leader to say, this client's getting me to do all this stuff. Because my sales leader was pretty cool. He would have been like, flick them off to the admin it can be done over the phone but like a joey i was going backwards and forwards and they were selling to me and i wasn't doing the job but but zig would say there's a fine but don't line you think that that quite often that's sorry mike you go thank you i was gonna say don't you think that's quite often because sales is a hard job we get so much rebuttal so much of the time so to actually just bloody find somebody who's nice to us yeah, that was probably your place of solitude when you were 21 wasn't well, it well yeah possibly yeah. but you need to understand the difference between refusal and rejection, as he addresses in the book. And that's a very astute point from you, Mike, is particularly in younger salespeople, particularly when you start, you put them on the phone and you make them dial out. It's so easy for them to fall in love with the prospects who's just pleasant. Yeah. It just doesn't give them a load of grief. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, because it's such a relief just to get into a conversation with someone who'll spend a bit of time talking to them on the phone. Actually, are they buying? Yeah, yeah. I'd rather deal. I'd rather deal with a. I'd rather deal with a mean bugger that's got loads of cash than a nice one that hasn't. No, absolutely. And I think there's a fine line between wanting to help. You know, I've just fill, filled a vacancy with a client though where the job's been turned down three times, and um, I've done a really great job for the client. Though I say it myself, but it it I did get drawn into almost a point of principle of passion of wanting to get it right for the client. Now, Zig would say that's absolutely where you should be. You should want to get it right for the client. Mm. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll bill a nice, decent looking fee on Monday for that when the invoice goes out. But there's a fine line between getting too involved and then not being a salesperson. Yeah, great. And getting too involved, you know, the, the customer, oh, I've got real problems. You know, in reality, there's a lot of people would have said you need to qualify out of that client. The candidates are turning the job down. The job's not that good. I agree completely. So what's interesting about this book is I'm just about to pull another little quote out. It's from page 127. We've been going for an hour and a quarter. And actually, we're only- And there's loads to talk about. Only a quarter into the book. Sign of a good book now. Yeah. 127, he goes, salespeople are nice folk. What do you reckon? I, d- I agree with that, by the way. I like salespeople. I always have. Um. I said to the rec to rec that we spoke to yesterday, I briefed a couple of, it, Jamie, when recruitment consultants recruit recruitment consultants, they go to rec to recs. Um, and I was briefing a rec to rec on a vacancy for us yesterday. I know it's nuts, isn't it? Recruitment consultants use recruitment consultants to find recruitment consultants, but they do. There's a whole industry for it. And I was briefing a rec to rec yesterday and we were talking about the job. And I said, one of the things about our job is the people we work with can be quite hard to handle, but they are all really lovely people. And we're very fortunate to work in a world where lovely. actually I spend my days working with really nice people 98% of the time. 
Now, I don't know whether that's because I'm accomplishing my job and I'm all right at working with the people, but actually I do really believe that we work with some really nice people. Or is it because you're very similar to them and you're drawn to them, Johnny? I can't work it out. So it makes my work enjoyable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, so, Jamie, you've got two candidates. One of the candidates is a six out of ten. One of the candidates is a five out of ten, but you've got to hire one of them. The six out of ten isn't very nice. The five out of ten is much nicer. Who are you going to hire? Uh, you've got to go with the person that you like. I think if we, I think the first, for me, in an interview, the first minute is that important because you are appraising whether you like the person. And if you don't like somebody, the chances are you're not going to hire them because you won't get on. It all starts from can you get on? Because if they've got a broadly, a five and a six is broadly a similar skill set, right? Yes. So it boils down to can I actually work with them? And, you know, just because someone's a five doesn't mean they can't be an eight. You know, Jim Collins, good to great and all that. People can evolve. And they may be a five now, but that might be because they're in the wrong job. They didn't have the right break. They didn't have someone who believed in them. So, you know, I've put people in pips in the past. And people often think going on a performance improvement plan means you're going to get fired. They always do, yeah. But it really doesn't. You know, some of our guys that are really successful have been on pips in the past for a whole series of reasons, but they've adapted it. They've had the right mental attitude and they've seen it as the business leaning in to help them and drive them to the next level. So, which I kind of guess folds into the next section of the book, right? The right mental attitude is where we're sort yeah. of drifting towards, Good isn't it? segue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's cool. what do you think about the right mental attitude then? Um, the, cynic, the cynic in me thinks this is filler from his other book um, <laughs> yeah. to, to, yeah. to pad it out. Um, but then as you sort of boil boil it down you know the positive mental attitude um is is critical for everybody and i think this is a good enough section to talk about you know how you feel about things and how you feel about the job and you know i think one of the things i used to do a training program and the first section in this training program that we used to deliver a long long time ago was all about the perceptions of salespeople. you know and we used to get the, the people on the uh, training to talk about their perceptions of salespeople, positive and negative, to discuss the kind of salesperson that they wanted to be. This, this was first jobbers that we were talking to. So I think it, it's critical. I've got this good buddy who runs his own business in Australia. Um, and he, he, his favorite saying is, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's how you feel about it. It's like, you know, you say you get, you get up and work with nice people, Johnny. So do I. It's like... It's a you, self-fulfilling you, prophecy, isn't completely, it, therefore? Completely. And, you know, if things are going well for you personally, quite often it flows into work because you feel good, you're happy, you're getting into it. If things, if you're having a bit of trouble, as we often do, and we've seen lots of this for people during the pandemic with mental health and death and horrific things you, you can see why people get down and it's hard to stay on the balance but i did like the on this whole couple of three chapters about positive mental attitude 
the professional visitor section, the nice folks, and, you know, feeling good about salespeople. Because one of the things we used to say was, you're going to earn as much as a doctor or a lawyer doing this without any of the qualifications. Yeah. So, you know, you should enjoy this, I think. So, yeah. But I like this section. I did like this section. I did. However, Uh, however, this is for you, Johnny. Go on. And this is important. I'm here. And I'm, I'm worried because this might destroy one of your other shows. Go on. This might be the end of a pint with JG. It won't be. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> Does a cocktail really sharpen you up? No. And then he has this whole section about not drinking. <laughs> well, with, it's, um... <laughs> it, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because I don't... I, I, it, when I hold first on, came hold on, up... hold on, hold on. Before you come back, Danny, before you come back, the point is clear. Don't take a drink when you're trying to persuade someone to take action. You're likely to get complacent, lose the mental sharpness, and lose the sale. Liquor is a depressant, not a stimulant, Johnny. He's right. Yeah. Can, I tell, can I let you into a little <laughs> secret, Jamie, about when, when I shoot a pint with JG, which I, I posted yesterday. I'm starting again now that we're back out. Um, when I go on a pint with JG, I taste the pint, and literally, I'm that professional. I pour parts of the pint away whilst I'm recording so that the pint drops down. Do we down. believe him, Michael? Do we believe him? Mike knows I do. No. No. <laughs> I'll take an occasional sip, but because it's during the school day. It's just a prop. I, yeah, it's literally, I'll taste it. I'll enjoy my taste of it, but I won't drink it. Because a, a, a pint can send me do lolly tap. Uh, I'm, 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 a, I'm a very bad drinker. So it's all for you then, Jamie, I do agree with you. And I'm glad you brought that bit of the book out. However, however, so, you know, I, I've spent 20 years placing salespeople and on odd occasion, they'll say, come on, Pricey, let's go for a beer after we've had a meeting. So if you don't think that you're in that pub selling to that client, you are being delusional. Oh, yeah, I agree. Because you are. And not having a pint is breaking, is a slight break of rapport. Yeah. Big yeah. break of rapport. I think it, it can be difficult though, right? I mean, I kind of i've been in some awkward situations over the years with hospitality and people expecting things so i kind of like the drinking to come after something's been inked typically not as part of the process and i remember um a horrific experience a few jobs ago we were on a lot of the clients said come on take us out take us out do this do that and we booked a table at ascot and it cost £10,000. Wow. And we had our £1,000 ahead for Royal Ascot Week. Um, we had all of our top accounts signed on, people that had signed with us. And then in the, in the week before, uh, there was me and one other guy from my company taking it. The eight people that we'd got invited, six of them dropped out. And we were left with two out of the top. And we literally... We, it was like we couldn't give away fivers trying to fill these six <laughs> seats. It was terrible. It was terrible. And my FD spent the whole week looking at me with a raised eyebrow that <laughs> essentially we'd hosed £6,000 at the wall, which we had. Yeah, yeah, even yeah. Even though they'd asked us for it. But then they all came back and they're like, oh, it's a bit awkward. Our legal says we can't come. And I'm like, what do you mean your legal says you can't come? You asked for this. You actually asked. and. Yeah. It's interesting that. It's a, de- a separate debate, isn't it, about the whole corporate hospitality thing? Yeah. We don't do it now. 
we just don't I do can it. only imagine that industry. My God, it must be on its, well, probably not yeah. even on its knees, is it? Yeah. No, I mean. It, it must have just. But yeah, it's smoking, building spiritual reserves, does a cocktail sharpen you up? He's right. Um, but equally, I know some really good salespeople who are fat, faggy boozers. Me too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I know some really, really, really good ones. And the reality is it's not the responsibility of the employer to maintain the health of an employee. You know, I, I, I don't like this whole concept of corporate wellness. I think it's actually fake, this whole sort of, yeah, we're really into wellness here at this company. No, what you're really into is making sure that we're productive machines for you. The reality is it's the human's responsibility and and yeah, you know, I, I know a guy who's a very, very successful man. He's an interesting story. He he did a little bit of time as a youth um, and then went on to be a sort of, he was a builder for a bit. And then he went into sales when he was about 21, 22. And he, he was in sales at Thompson Local. And he was one of the best salesmen in the UK for Thompson Local at a time when people bought stuff on Thompson Local. And uh, he used to have a plaque on the dashboard of his car that said, one more call. And he used to look at it every night and before, and when he said, no matter how tired he was, he'd literally make himself do one more call. But he had the energy to do it. He was young and fit. Now, actually, he became a bit of a party animal when he set up his business and became very successful. He's got an electronics company. I don't know whether he'd been that capable of doing one more call based on how hard he partied. But that concept, one more call. Mm. I think that's brilliant. And that's what Zig says. Can you do one more call? Can you make that one? Can you dial out one more time? It's tired. It's Friday. Can you actually think, do you know what? I'm just going to make another one. Before, before the day finishes, I'm just going to just do one more. No, it's a good attitude. It's a good attitude. It is, isn't it? You know, you know, the rock, you know, the rock. I love the rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. love watching that. Well, he's great. If you're feeling a bit miserable, watch a few Dwayne Johnson videos on YouTube. And he's, he always says, he said, I might not be the best at it, but nobody's going to outwork me. Yeah. Yes. It's a good attitude. hundred percent. Yeah. And then he talks about building mental reserves, doesn't he? Which I like. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I've worked hard on mine recently. I've got rid of LinkedIn off my phone, gone, and a load of other stuff that was just draining me of energy, predominantly news. Mm. Just got rid of it. Yeah. Subscri- I subscribed to the Times, got rid of all sort of Sky News feeds of cheap tabloid news that you don't even realise are going into your brain. But I tell you, they, I don't know what the objective of news casters is at the moment uh, the last time i watched some regional news i was at my parents during lockdown one and my parents were getting you know they're in their um late 60s early 70s they're getting quite agitated about the pandemic uh, as a lot of people have done and they had, they had the like six thirty to 7 news on after the national news and it dawned on me why they were so agitated it is 30 minutes of gloom yeah, and it really yes. is just like and it, and Zig's saying and he said you've got to go on a mental diet. Yeah, it's it's about what's what is your mental diet. I've had it with my daughter where I've looked at the books she was reading and the content she was consuming, and I've just started take. I, I, it's a bit manipulative, but I've just controlled the books she reads now. I just buy it. I buy them before she can buy them, and I just leave them in a bedroom for her to read, and she just reads them because I just think that this kid's mental diet has been rubbish. 
And if a mental diet's rubbish, your thinking's going to be rubbish. Lucky Isabel. Do you know what I mean? And <laughs> reading really heavyweight intellectual books. Poor kid, 18 years old. Yeah. She wants trash, Johnny. She'll thank me when she's older. Fair enough. So where are we all up to in the book here? I'm getting a bit lost in it all. Which obviously testimonials. I think we're in testimonials at the back of building a mental reserve. And then we're on part three, the sales professional. What's a shame about this book is... It's just so long. He creates little sections where you think, yeah, you've got me, the sales professional. You're going to tell me all about what, what, what is and what isn't a professional salesperson. And then actually he doesn't. And that's the real weakness of the book for me. Yeah. I like one thing we've not discussed. I kind of like how the parts open up and with the objectives, and then it sort of gives you a highlight of what's in that section. And if you read the objectives, like you say, Johnny, you feel like you're about to get something, and I don't think it ever quite delivers. No, it, it doesn't. It just doesn't get Because I was actually, although there are useful things in this book, I was actually quite pleased when I finished reading it. Yeah, yeah, I went. Phew. Yeah, me too. Like, like finishing a long run. To be fair, it could have been eighty pages, couldn't it? Oh, easily. Yeah, I think if it had been brought up to the modern standard and all the guff taken out of it, I agree with you. And I think it could be quite easily. Do you, you have you read the One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey series, the Blanchard books, which is really short, isn't it? Yeah, I think you could have turned this. You could turn this into an abridged yeah. version. I mean, I'm on page 165 now. He talks about the professional is a student. Do you know, I circled exactly the same bit. How many people really are students? Oh, not many. Well, the irony is, Johnny, everybody that's listening to this show is a student. Yeah, we've said this before, haven't we, that our audience is the converted. Yeah. But actually, out of the salespeople that we meet and are connected to, how many of them are students? Not many. Really, I would think 10%. The rest of it are just learning by doing, aren't they? Yeah, learning by doing and just getting to the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, there's nine to five workers. And getting to the end of the day and, and, and quite literally hoping they'll hit target this year. Quite a lot. I did like the um, sort of like side comment in this bit where it says spectacular achievement is always preceded by unspectacular preparation. Yeah, it's so true, isn't and it? For me, that's just doing doing the mundane, doing the objectives. In any walk of life. In any walk of life. Well, it's amazing, you know, particularly in interviews. Is So I had some client feedback recently, and the client went, yeah, I get the fact he's leaving his current employer because he doesn't think the product is suitable for the market. But at no point, Mike, because he has to see our product. And I thought, yeah, right. That's just basic preparation, isn't it? Turning up to an interview without having done your preparation, the interviewer is obviously going to get annoyed by that. Well, he's not thought about his story, has he, Mike? He's not thought. If I, if I say that, what could, how could somebody react? Separate conversation of that, but you're absolutely right. So you must have this a lot, Jamie, where people don't know what you do before they sit down with you for an interview and you immediately think, oh my God, you, you're unsuccessful. There's a, yeah, completely. There's a base level. I mean, we do a lot of things, to be clear. So it is difficult to fathom what we actually do specifically because we're arranged by brand and matrixed so i'm often looking at someone for a specific brand and what i like them to do is i like them to get it wrong i like them to come in and have a good stab at explaining what they've seen in the wild about us and you can tell 
how good someone is by their attempt at that because no one gets it right. I'm not expecting them to get it right. The answer as a as a recruiting manager that I hate, when is which I consider to be the massive cop out, is when people go, "Well, I was hoping you'd tell me now in the interview. I was hoping you'd outline it." And you just think, <laughs> "Oh, you can't be bothered, can you?" <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the case, isn't it? Yeah, and it's sort of like if you can't be bothered, can I be bothered? Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. Uh, then I got into imagination selling, which is, I think, part four. So this this had a lot of promise. Oh, so much promise! But actually, was a really rubbish chapter. But it but the premise of the chapter was great, which is actually what he's saying is it, it's the stew. What's the name of the guy that wrote How to Get a Meet with Anybody? Stew Heineke. Stew Stew Heineke. Ha- yeah. What he's alluding to is the Stu Heineken method here. He's saying, get creative. And actually, he's right. Now, there's a couple of nice closers here. I'll hold up to the camera, which obviously you can't see, you can't see whatever. One is the diagram close, and one is the 2020 close. Right. Where clearly Zig is sat opposite his prospect with a notepad and pen, saying, if you don't buy this, this is what happens. If you do buy this, this is what has happened. Now, I think this is a forerunner to a return on investment-based close, isn't it, really? Yes, to visually creating ROI arguments. Yeah, I thought, I thought yeah, fair play, Zig. I thought that's really smart. Yeah, and it's, and it's that creativity that gets people deals, isn't it? Some people are more creative, and, and that ability to do something creative, to think outside the box. So can I just, on this section, can I just flag my worst close? In the whole book. <laughs> yes, please. That I literally was like, what? The marriage close? Oh, I like that. Oh, I wrote that down, Jamie. I, I, I just was like, this is like half nine last night, and I'm thinking, are you having a laugh? Yeah, yeah. And what for it? I think I wrote something really disparaging. I wrote three letters. I wrote WTF. But then... <laughs> but then... After rereading it a couple of times, I wrote something on the next page. I wrote, hidden gem in meaning. He means do something wacky and yeah, notable. Creative. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, while this was like bonkers, maybe it was of its time. I wrote, ugh. <laughs> I, E-U-C-H, ugh. That, that's actually what I wrote next to it. I was just appalled. Just ugh, keep that away from me. Um, terrible. I mean, literally, there are no circumstances on earth ever under which I would recommend that to any person in the business of selling anything. No, and I think this then trots into the most horrific, sexist, trite portion of the book after yeah. the redhead buying the house. Yeah. And, you know, I was just like, I was literally at this stage. If you remember at the beginning, we talked about we'd been given permission to start skipping through the book. Uh, this page, I started scrolling pages fast. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, absolutely. But, but, and his other one, the to it close, when you get around to it. I mean, he's trying to use humour there. I mean, I, I wrote, I don't believe this. No. You know, I think that, I think that was made up. I think Stu Heinecke, his book, is a much better treatise of this concept, isn't it, Mike? Yeah, well, well, that's all the book concept. I mean, fair, you know, if Stu Heineke's book is a book about being creative in order to win and uh, win over customers. Zig's written this. 
uh, you know, 50 years ago, before, you know, people had CD players, let alone the internet. You know, the internet was born the year after, uh, and it's two pages on creativity. You know, Stu Heineke wrote it in 2015, and it was a whole book on creativity. But if you want some creative thinking ideas, Stu Heineke's book is a good one. Um, the book itself was rubbish, actually. Yes, but we did. But I, I, but I did get a few bits out of it, none of which worked. I sent a picture of Alistair Brownlee to a customer, a signed photo of Alistair Brownlee to a prospect I was desperate to get in with. Didn't help. Separate book, but it's interesting. <laughs> I don't know if you've, if you have you uh, listened to the Stu Heineke book review on the series, Jamie? No, no, I've not. It's an interesting one. I saw the shake of the head, so I got the. Uh, uh, the sentiment, but it's a very interesting book if you want to think about creatively getting through to clients. It was, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, it takes a bit of reading, but you know, it get, it, it, but it is worth reading. If you know what I mean, you will get some good ideas out of it. What did you think of the song, "The Cokes and Smokes Close"? Not for me, not for me. That so this is where well, I mean, some of it did feel like padding. Yeah, the, the very paddy, very much so. Using word pictures to sell, but you see, just going, just going back to the song, and, and using pictures and words. Actually, it's all in the same theme. Is Jamie a while ago we were talking about how the uh, selling arena has evolved and how it's changed? I think that's just a precursor to what we're now doing with it, with some of the NLP stuff. I, I think NLP is just a much more. You know, we read the unfair advantage. He had an instinctive understanding of certain words being triggers for certain emotions, not not based on science. They're all visual for him, but... Yeah. And, you know, he, he says, he makes a really good com- comment here. Watch those words. Use of things like, you know, and uh, you know what I mean? I, I always remember a guy that I worked with that would say, yeah, at the end of everything. Oh, John. Well, we know his name. Yeah, his name was John. And he'd go... You have a good day, yeah? You just found yourself saying yes all the time. Do you know who else does that on TV? Who? Gordon Ramsay does it. I hadn't noticed. I'm sure you're right. Yeah, I hadn't noticed. And it, it can be irritating. This was powerful for me, these words. Was that good? This is a really important thing for thinking about your language and how you come across yeah. to a prospect. Um, this is actually possibly the closest he gets to a science-based argument in this book. And, he, and it's based on his instinctive knowledge of words that, and how words affect people. But his instincts are bang on. They're absolutely spot on, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. Profit, results, truth, comfort, proud versus hard, worry. Don't worry, Mr. Customer. You know, it's basic common sense. You don't say that to a customer, do you? Don't worry. And then as we move on into the next section, I sort of... Where he started, it was just more sexist stuff that was just a bit much, really, you know, and he talks about selling to single women. and Well, well it, 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 but you see, it, get, it gets even more that way. However, <laughs> this is going to be controversial, I know. Chapter 32, selling and courting run parallel paths. Oh, this was awful. This was awful. Oh, my God, I know. I think that's the point at which I thought, right, I'm just going to hope that Jamie and Mike have read the rest of the book and go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you see the, the, the thing with it is, it's just so of its time. Mm. Well, actually, it, it, it was of its time in, in, in that regard. 
Um, and I don't can't quite remember. How, I didn't underline it, but I can't quite remember how I worded it. But he basically said, "Listen, you've spent loads of money on fine wine and a beer and a few beers and a meal. You want to get a kiss out of her?" Is what is how he words it. It's something like that. And I read it and thought. But to be fair, Michael, I do remember a twenty-year-old you or twenty-one-year-old you, as your as your manager at the time. On a Friday night, I'd say, "What are you going to do tonight?" And you'd say, "I'm going to make twenty decision maker calls." Yeah, yeah, that was that was sort of. And what? And by that, Mike would mean I'm going to speak to twenty girls. Yeah, absolutely. Good job, Mrs. P doesn't listen to this show. So the next one, and he'd and he'd make himself do it. So the next one, Johnny, before you alienate all of our clients. Is, is he was talking about the smell good clothes. And he says, the, the key of your physical action starts with your physical cleanliness. Now, we've sort of brushed on this a little bit uh, uh, to a degree. But I do think that... Um, so, so we used to have a candidate. I'm not going to say his name. And I can remember uh, one of our previous clients, this guy was a very, very heavy smoker. And if you want to smoke, then that's your lookout. You know, it's not illegal. So, yeah, fair enough. Whatever floats your boat. And this consultant said to him, listen, I, I really don't think you should smoke before you go into your interview. Because the interview feedback from the client was, literally, Mike, it smelled like it had a cigarette sat in my interview room. And, you know, so this guy, has got, you've got to tell the candidate the truth. You've got to tell it. He said, do you want the truth? Candidate said, yeah. He said, I really don't think you should smoke a cigarette just before you go into the interview. Candidate went, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Obviously, the candidate got the job. Obviously, he's still there. Obviously, he's their best salesperson. So, you know, it's an interesting one, isn't it, that Zig points to all these little parts, and I sort of get it, but I sort of don't, and I can't decide in my mind whether it's just old-fashioned or whether we're past that now, or whether we're past judging people on those kind of things, and whether we're just now looking at purely at what they offer. I think, I think it translates in a modern context to not giving a customer a reason to not buy off you. Yeah, but using that candidate's point, is he was a smoker, he wasn't going to change himself, so fair enough. I think, I think it's common sense, isn't it? A little bit. You know, I think um, uh, my mind drifts back to one of Mike's posts about the big beard and the lumberjack shirt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, it's like how you want to project yourself in in a given situation, you know, and... You know, I used to smoke a long time ago too, but, you know, common sense would say don't have a fag just before you go into a small room with someone. Yeah. That's it's common sense because you don't know the situation. You know, don't talk politics with people because you don't know their viewpoint. And Correct. it could easily antagonize. But even the next day after the elections, right, you know, if a client brings up politics, I'll always smile and go, yeah, I do it's what it is. It's, we've got a result now. You just deflect and get back on point, don't you? So completely. What? Why? Why give a customer a reason to not work with you? Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? I used to have another candidate who used to douse himself in so much aftershave that I used to have to wash my hands after I met him. Very common when we first started, my, my early stages of recruitment, and when we'd meet a lot of candidates face to face, it was very common. That you'd get, you'd meet a candidate and you'd have to go straight to wash your hands afterwards because they had so much af- they'd have so much aftershave on. Mm-hmm. That was what they did. Mm-hmm. Chapter thirty three: Enthusiasm. We covered this a bit earlier on, really. Yeah, but I, I think enthusiasm for what you do is absolutely fundamental. 
Yeah. Like, like belief. They just sense that there's an energy about people. Completely agree. I quite like the three question close. One, can you see where this would save you money? Two, are you interested in saving money? Three, if you were ever going to start saving money, when do you think would be the best time to start? That sounds a bit like uh, uh, of a prudential one, really, Jamie, I'm sure. Complete herding question. And I think, Johnny, you had sort of alluded to something similar to this earlier on in the call. And I think, yeah, it's like, I mean, the first one is a big sign. Can you see where this would save you money? No. Well, you've not done a good enough job then. Then we need to go back and say, yeah. here it is. Look, have I not made myself clear or have I missed something? Right. Are you interested in saving money? No. No, I'm not interested. I like spending it. It's like, <laughs> and I can't quite yeah. work out if there is a place for that in what we're doing. Well, there is. It's called the luxury goods market. Is there a place for it in our universe, though, Jamie? Is there a place for it in your team? A comment like that. Are, are you in? Uh, uh, are you interested in uh, making sure that your network's secure, Mister Client? I know what you're saying. Well, of course, uh, I do know what you're saying. It, can we translate it? And I think where it translates into where our industries meet, and I see this error occur so often, is uh, the the customer wants to spend £85,000 a year on this salesperson, or the salesperson wants ninety. No, no, eighty-five, And it's like, oh, tell him 86, 500. He wants nine. And I think I see other managers doing it, and I think, have you actually done, and Zig actually talks about that. Have you actually broke it down? And she does it right in the redhead stuff, right at the beginning. So what we're actually talking about is you want to fall out with this client. You want your um, salesperson to start with a sour taste in their mouth over £179 a month. Yeah. Is that really what you want? Gross. That's a gross 179 quid a month. That's what, that's what your argument's boiling down to. And I think, you know, I think, People get wrapped up in principle and don't assess the bigger picture often enough, in my opinion. And I, I think, as, as a, and what's interesting, and maybe we, we could, unless there's another part of the book that's mind-blowingly brilliant and, and you want to mention it, is my overall conclusion with this is, he says, read the book three times. I'm not going to. Um, that's because I'm a very, very prolific reader. Yeah, I'm a prolific reader and I haven't got the time to go back over this one again. Um, it's several hours I haven't got when there are other books on my reading list that I'll, I really need to get through. Well, not need, but but are incredibly important to me to get through. And um, if I did read it, I, I do think if I read it three times, if I spent time, I'd go through all these closes and I'd translate them into my own world. But I think some of them are so far, you're almost, when I was a kid at the Leeds Grammar School, they taught us ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics as a language, right? Ridiculous, I know, but they taught us it because the basis was if you can learn ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, you'll find learning other languages really easy. And actually they were right, separate conversation. But this is linguistically, in terms of how we work now, so far removed, it's going to take several translations to bring it into my own methodology and my own world. I'd need to read the book three, four times before I could take each close and think, right, could I, could I get that close 
and turn that into a little script that I might actually learn and use in that scenario, my God, that's going to take some work. Because they are so far removed now from the world as it is. What do you reckon? Are we into providing scores on this book? I think let's. I think it's time to do it. Right. Uh, guests first. Or would you want to go last, Jamie? It's up to you. I'll go last. I'll go last. Okay, then. Uh, I'll go then. So, I'll tell you I'm going to give this book. I'm going to give it a four. Ooh. It loses loads of points because it's just not very relevant. Where it gains points is, is Zig is an unashamed salesperson. And I think if you're a bit down in the doldrums and you're going to go on your holiday and you thought, you know what, I'm just going to chill out and read something that's super easy to read that's just going to wash over me, that literally is like reading Christmas cracker jokes that you smile at the odd one because they're mildly amusing, that's what the book is. Don't expect to read the book and it, com- and it to completely change your world. You, you know, you can't. That It's not going to. But in fairness to Zig Ziglar, he is one of the most famous salespeople in the world. And, uh, and when all said and done, I think if any of us, the three people on this call, had watched him selling cookware in somebody's home, we would have gone right now. He knows how to bloody sell stuff. He sells with the stars. Yeah, and actually, if you want to know how to do something, find somebody who's better at it than you. And I think he's, pre- I think he's all right. Okay. I'm going to give it a five and a half. My reasoning being, I've knocked a couple of marks off just for the lack of, it's not even political correctness. Some of it's a bit offensive, actually. Um, so that bit, and I've knocked the rest of it off for being too verbose and more specifically, the lessons in it are actually great, but it, it could do with a translation A from B to C to B to B and B from B to B to 2021. Um, and if actually Tom Ziegler got off his arse and rather than writing a few pithy sub-comments in the supposedly revised edition and translated it from B to C to B to B and B to B to 2021, it'd be a 10 but it does need translating because it's actually a different language. It's ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic. As a book, I would say it's an incredibly influential work by a guy that's incredibly heavily influenced modern selling and the world that we live in. But like I said at the start, it's like, please, please me by the Beatles. It's a load of 19-year-old kids with mop tops singing Love Me Do or whatever it is that's on the album. They're not particularly brilliant songs, really, but it is very influential. So would I recommend people read it? There's, if, you rang, if somebody rang me next week and said, I'm going on holiday, I'm finally going on holiday, I've got my COVID passport, I'm going on holiday, what should I read? This wouldn't be my first recommendation. So there's my five and a half. For me, it's a, it's a five. It got an extra point because it's an antique. It is an antique. <laughs> yeah, right. it is. A, you know, it's classic. part of... It's part of the rich tapestry that makes up our profession. Yeah. And it did, like you said, Johnny, it did feed in to other things. So, you know, without this, you might not have had some other leaps forward. There were enjoyable moments, but like you say, it was offset by lots of moments that made me raise my eyebrows and write disparaging comments in it. It's the, it's the first Zig Ziglar book I've ever read, so I can say that I've read Zig Ziglar, I can add that to my 
uh, collection of sales things. I do think it did make me think about other things that I've learned. So that's good. And like I said at the beginning, Sales 101 Refresher is always good, however good you think you are. Um, and yeah, not terrible. Um, but like you, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. You know, I literally, I bought um, Never Split the Difference for everyone on my team. Um, this wouldn't be one that makes it into our internal book club. So hopefully people will have got something from our session and will have saved them the money and time of reading this book. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Well, at that we'll finish. Thank you very much for listening today. Goodbye. Goodbye.